After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu Marcus from MindPod Network and Mind Rolling. And this is just a little uh, prelude to the next episode from David Silver and myself. And it's a, a wonderful chat with a very, very unique and unusual young woman named Teal Swan. And uh, before I get into uh, a little bit of reflection about that, I wanted to um, update everybody on our campaign to for MindPod Network, which I hope that many of you uh, know about at this point, on Indiegogo. And you can go to mindpodnetwork.com and just uh, link up through the banner at the top with the Indiegogo page, which has all these wonderful perks and our whole story of how it started how the network started and uh, what we need to continue it. And it's, it's expanding uh, exponentially at this point, And we really do need some help. And uh, I think everybody feels the value of uh, what's being offered here by all these wonderful teachers, Ram Das and Krishna Das and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Lama Surya Das and Tara Brock and our uh, so-called youngsters, Chris Grasso and Michael Donovan, and a big announcement soon to come uh, of uh, somebody else from our low-hanging fruit family uh, is going to be coming aboard, and uh, we're going to introduce that next time round. Um, so uh, we're uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, we'll be almost halfway uh, through our campaign, a couple of weeks, it lasts for about four weeks uh, or so, and uh, we're doing nicely, and, and we love the support. We're not quite there at all at this point, and uh, I think I suggested this last time, but I'm going to suggest it again. If everyone just gave $9, and you know, that, again, as I said last time, 9 is the sacred number to get us to 108, uh, it it would put us over the top, way over the top. We'll be able to build, we need to build an app. Nobody's going to websites. We need a hub on our smartphones for all of the wonderful content, and we need to create more of this content, uh, online courses, meditations, things that are going to help us. Uh, we have this incredible life in balance uh, course, uh, audio course that we are in the midst of putting together, and we need lots of help, engineers and editors 
and uh, graphic people, uh, website people, app people to put all this stuff together. So I'm not going to go further than just to say, can everyone, everyone, as many of you as feel like they want to support this kind of uh, network with these kind of people, which is more than just podcasts, it's also uh, wonderful articles and um, uh, arcane items from around the universe that we present on uh, mindpodnetwork.com. So please do uh, just consider, as I say, just a, a little, a, a whole pile of us at $9. I mean, there's many, you know, so many thousands and thousands of people that are downloading and streaming this podcast. Uh, so please take a look at the very least. And uh, now we're going to uh, go to this uh, very unusual podcast. And I have to say, uh, Teal uh, has a, a heartbreaking story which he tells in the podcast, uh, of growing up, uh, being, uh, her third eye being completely open and, uh, and people taking advantage of that until she finally broke free. I won't get into the details. And, uh, usually I am not personally, I mean, I've gone to psychics and stuff like that in my life and, you know, and I've enjoyed some of the sessions that I've had and they've been revealing this, uh, Teal, uh, this woman's teal is so unusual, and what comes out of her is got a high level level of substance, of of authenticity, of practicality that really fits in with what we want to share on mind dwelling. So I think you're going to really be surprised uh, by this. Both David and I were. Uh, this this uh, this young woman was recommended to us actually by uh, one of. Uh, Ram Dass is uh, a student, a follower of Ram Dass, someone who just suggested this to us, actually. Uh, so please enjoy this podcast and uh, please continue to support Mind Rolling and MindPod Network. And we'll see you next week after you listen to this podcast. Uh, we're the Mind Rollers, David Silver and Raghu Marcus, and we have a very special guest today. Her name is Teal Swan, and we have never met. Well, I met Teal just <laughs> briefly some time back, a few weeks ago, and uh, but we've never talked. We've never met. See, this is the beauty of podcasts. So we're just going to get to know each other uh, in the next uh, 45 minutes, hour, whatever happens. So... Uh, and and one thing, by the way, Dave, um, yeah. and and this is embarrassing um, because Teal has a book, a new book, which I saw when I did a little bit of investigation. Um, so and you know, Teal, we usually have, and who's doing it? Is it Hay House? I think. Yes. Right. Who we know. Yep. Um, and we usually s- uh, get the book sent to us, and David and I pour through it so that we can go through it. So we don't have that advantage. So we're going to need you. Um, at some point here in the, in the uh, show to uh, talk about it, okay? Because okay. uh, we want to uh, get it exposed to people. Now, um, everybody out there, Teal um, uh, has a site and is known as a spiritual catalyst, right? And the, spir- and the site is the spiritual catalyst, is that correct? 
It's just tealswan.com. Oh, it is. Okay. <laughs> but but you do refer to yourself as a spiritual yep. catalyst. Yes. Okay, so um, I want to... Um, I get the first question, Dave. Okay. I want... Well, you should. You're the spiritual cat. Ah, thank I you. Thank you. Yes. Teal, tell us what you mean by a spiritual catalyst. Well, basically, <laughs> when I first started this career, people would joke that they only wanted to come to me if it was really, really serious, because I was going to basically make them go in one or two directions, either straight in the direction of their shadow or right in the direction of something that was really feel-good. And at first, I was really bugging me that people were so polarized. But when I came to really embrace the concept that you're basically a conduit for whatever a person needs at that particular moment, I was able to release some resistance to it. And so a catalyst essentially is, is a substance that affects something and creates rapid change in that thing. My only issue, of course, with the word catalyst, I just couldn't find anything better, is the fact that in, in a scientific experiment, a catalyst is something that doesn't change when it changes other things. And that's an hmm. impossibility in life. So... Um, Mm. With the exception of that one aspect, I think the fact that, that just by entering into the space, I am causing people to go in the direction of whatever their expansion is, essentially mm. was the... And uh, that's, by that's the way... Clear. That's yeah, clear. Yeah. What totally. we do on this uh, podcast is usually when we have guests, not always, but we try, is to ask what was the catalyst um, that precipitated, you know, transformation... And um, and the and the desire to share that that with others, and you know you can answer any way you want. But what was the thing? If you could choose, you know, one sort of central thing, what was the thing that brought you to the business of communicating wisdom and um, light and love to people? What was it? I was born extrasensory. So the best way to understand that is that when most people come into the physical dimension of reality, they actually shift a portion of their brain so that they can fully be here. It's almost like if you could turn your brain off to the external reality when you walk into a movie theater, the movie theater would then become your reality. That's what the majority of people do when they walk into physical life. It serves expansion to only have the perspective of your one limited life experience. When I came in, that filter essentially was blown. So in, even though people see these abilities of mine as, a, as an ability, it's actually a disability. That's how the universe would see it. How old were you when it, its first realizations of this? When I first realized that I was different than everybody else, I was probably um, four or five years old when I first went into schools, and they were not reacting to me very nicely. But my mother was real taken aback by it from the minute I was born. They were not spiritual people, per se. I mean, my parents are very scientific. They were both forest rangers, and so they didn't know what to do with a kid who had all of these uh, spiritual abilities, who was very hypersensitive and talking about being able to see colors around people and hear people's thoughts and things like that. But um, basically, because of my abilities, my parents um, ended up, as a side note, my parents ended up moving to a, a place that was very rural and very religious. And because of these abilities that I had, Growing up in that very religious setting, I was targeted by a cult that was in the area who believed that essentially these abilities that I had was a gift from the devil. Hmm. And they believe it's their direct job to rid the earth of evil. And a cult like that really is an open door for people who struggle with psychopathy and sociopathy. 
And so essentially my parents had a, a loose family acquaintance that they had no idea was involved in this stuff, but he was. And so he infiltrated the family and became my childhood mentor. And for 13 years, I was tortured physically, sexually, mentally, emotionally, and um, ended up having to escape when I was 19. Hmm. So really, um, I'm not really breaking the mold of the door to get in through the enlightenment experience and that I entered into it through suffering like so many people do. <laughs> and when I got away from that cult at 19, I was an absolute shell of a person. I mean, like addicted to cutting. I would have sex with anybody who would pass by type of a thing and hmm. multiple suicide attempts. <laughs> and I did not care what I knew about the universe at large. I didn't care about what my abilities were doing. I was convinced it was the very reason I was tormented. So basically I wanted nothing to do with that. Went to professional sports and really found out that I couldn't run away from it. And so when my son was born, this is the secondary catalyst. When my son was born, I expected to have a, a son that was a jock, somebody who, you know, would be like really into physical sports probably. And when he came out, he had this aura color, which we, we call a crystal child nowadays. It's just a very prismatic, clear colored aura. And it's one of the highest spiritual colors. So you can guarantee that that person is coming in with spiritual gifts. So I cried for about four hours and then realized that um, my only hope of basically teaching him to live with any kind of abilities that he came in with was to learn how to do it myself. So I started embracing them again and started seeing people one-on-one. -on -one. And it was kind of shocking the amount that I like know about the universe based on the fact that my filter is blown and things that other people didn't know and even more blown away that they were being helped by those things. And it felt good to me, you know, cause like I came from this miserable place of complete shame where everybody had told me that what I was was bad. And here I am suddenly making it so that these people are waking up to themselves and living a better life. And so I found eventually that this was my greatest passion. I, it was like what I just, I couldn't stop doing it. Not only that, when I would start doing it, hours would go by and I wouldn't have any awareness, which is what it feels like when you're really in alignment. And then I realized that I had to get my information to a bigger audience because it was like, I was shocking that people didn't know some of the stuff to me. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of pretentious and funny, but you just, you know, when you're limited to your one experience, like how do you know what other people do and don't know? So I wrote my first book which was The Sculptor in the Sky. And it was a basically informative guide about the universe. It's the big questions in life, the purpose of life. Why are we here? How does happiness play into the purpose of life? And how do you get it? Those types of questions. Hmm. And when that got released, it was a big hit. And people started asking me to come talk around the world. And I started doing that. And now here I am, I don't even know how many years it's been, six years, seven years only maybe, and my career has exploded. Really? Wow. You know, uh, we've talked to a number of, 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 shall we say, spiritual conduits, channels over the last few years doing this podcast. Uh, many of them our age and, you know, Ram Dass and people of that ilk. But we've also talked to people under 30 quite a bit. And I don't think it's at all a simplification to say that even though your story is, is extreme and there was a lot of suffering... We have encountered recovery from young people as a gateway to uh, awareness, enlightenment, and altruism. Yes. Many times. I'd, I'd say as many as 80% of the people under 30 that we've talked to have come through this suffering. And you talk about an epidemic in one of your terrific, clear 
Lucid YouTube, uh, on your YouTube channel. I looked at quite a few of them. And you talk about this epidemic of emptiness caused by a lack of emotional touch. Mm -hmm. That's a poor way of saying what, what you do say. Would you talk about that a little bit? I mean, in terms of generally with people in this time and give some kind of insight as to why. Epidemic is a strong word. Yes. I agree with you. I totally agree with you, but I'd love it if you could just elucidate that a little bit. So basically, we are living in an emotional dark age. So for thousands of years, what you've seen with most spiritual teachers is that they're concerned primarily with the element of life, which we could call thought. Thought is the thing that's been questioned the most. Where we're completely ignorant is the level of emotion. And so we watched this play out in society like crazy in that hundreds of years ago, or even less, punitive relationships between parents and child were normal. So it was normal to hit. It was normal to spank. That kind of stuff was just how you raise children. And it's only as time has progressed that we now see that as abuse. So we're in the same kind of a cycle right now with the way that a lot of parents are raising children in that the years to come will prove that this is essentially emotional abuse. But most people, when they think of emotional abuse, they think of um, really overt name calling, things like that. But what I'm here to basically tell people is that the number one damage that we're, we've been doing this epidemic essentially is what is not seen. It's what's not being done. So it's that we don't know how to emotionally take care of each other. And we could call this particular condition emotional neglect. It's essentially the hugs that didn't happen, the encouragement that didn't occur, the feeling of belonging that wasn't given to a child that is causing this insane emptiness that happens, not just an emptiness, a lack of connection between people. And when there's a lack of connection between people, you have the society we're living in today. Now, it's, it's easy to look at that and say, okay, well, how extreme could this get? Think about the average criminal who's able to walk into a house, regardless of who lives in that house, and smash people up, kill them potentially, and steal things. In order to be able to do those types of things, you have to have a basic disconnection with the very people that you are imposing yourself upon. So what we were seeing in the criminal world today even is a, a whole group of people who feel a lack of connection. And I am going to pinpoint that lack of connection on the early life experience. They're not taught how to have a connection, and so they're basically primed coming into this world with a sense of disconnection between themselves and everything. The best way to describe it is that it's almost like there's a pane of glass between themselves and the world. I can't touch it even though I can see it, and they can't see me. It's a lack of intimacy. So an emptiness is another big deal, too, because emptiness, that feeling of not being connected to anything, is the number one cause of suicide and addiction as well which I don't know if you ever heard about this, this study that was done, but it fascinated the hell out of me. Whereas in the 70s, they were doing all this research about mind-altering substances and what was addictive and what wasn't addictive, because, of course, there's this explosion of psychedelic drugs. Now, what are we going to do about this, right? As the FDA, we got to prove that this is the addictive substance. we got to make sure that we can get rid of it, right? <laughs> but they, they ran into a little bit of a problem, because basically... They proved that, that those particular substances were addictive to the degree that those rats were isolated. What started happening when they produced positive environments and when they, instead of isolating these mice and rats, they started putting them in with other rats is that the rats essentially shunned the addictive substance. They did not even go over, even though it was cocaine and things like that, they did not even go over to taste it. Mm -hmm. And so essentially it's not the substance itself 
that is the addictive thing. It's that they're using the substance as an escape route to get away from the negative experience they're having in life. Namely, of course, what these scientists came to the conclusion of is that it's isolation that was doing it. And I, and I feel like seeing what I see in the world, it's a, a huge metaphor for what's going on on a mass scale, especially in the youth today. <laughs> you know, yes. Dave, this reminds me, we, uh, Teal, we just did a podcast, um, and in it we talked about um, a couple of things we found people reporting on. One of them was around the lack of spiritual capital that is inherent in families these days, and, the, and that uh, uh, they talked about how, like, teenagers go through uh, a period where there is a lot of depression and what am I living? What is this all about? We can all relate with that, although I'm not, David and I can, we've talked about it, you know, in terms of our, the catalyst that, uh, that uh, changed us. There was a lot of depression and unhappiness yeah. that, that led us to open up in, in other ways, right? Yeah. At the same time, it's also the time of finding that spiritual connection, that connectivity, which is the reality of this universe. And uh, and so he, this man's name was David Brooks. He writes for the New York Times, uh, amazing writer. Um, and he talked about the lack of that being given to our children and within our family structures is has is contributing in a major way to the br to really a, f a fall down a breakup of of our societal happiness if you would put it that way so uh, actually what you're speaking of is directly connects with what the, this thing that we just did and it, there's also this whole other thing we did around awe people having experience awe inspiring experiences and there's not enough of that being engendered. And they found out that when people actually um, follow that path and have those experiences, they can be just going out and seeing the moon and then seeing you know, uh, the ripples uh, on a stream, uh, taking a walk. With when people have those kinds of experiences, they are far more altruistic and far more caring about their fellow humans and so on. So this this is like a, a such a, for us an important we were really talking about paying this forward and uh you know uh, what we've been doing with mind rolling and mindpod network which is a co conglomeration of people I know one of them you know which is Ramdas yes and I think you probably know some of the others Jack Cornfield and so on um and and that's just wanting to share that I think it's really important that this gets passed on. So, which is why I was intrigued about your work. Honestly, I mean, David talks about, uh, he talked about, you know, we've talked to a lot of people who are catalysts in some sense and so on, but we've never talked to anybody with, David, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, with the abilities that you have, psychic abilities. We have never done that. And why? Because many of those people are, um, and I don't want to be judgmental, which <laughs> I am, uh, they get caught in their own astral identifications. And there isn't, and when I look, w by the way, David, Teal and I met because Teal 
was interested in Ramdas's work and uh, was also, we were thinking, well, it'd be great if you got together, and she was thinking of going to Maui and all of that, so that's how we got together. And, um, and that led me to take a look at what you were doing, which has substantial connectivity to being able to help people in a practical way, which is what we're all about. <laughs> so I, I just had to kind of connect up all the dots with, you know, what we're doing and what and who you are. Yeah, uh, when, you, when you look at your, your, your um, talks, uh, they're just not like any other, well, they're unique, but there certainly isn't that astral thing going on with many of them. And I, I just wanted to go back to something which I think you're really great about, which is the lack of something is harder to detect than actual, um, you know, an active um, abuse. But it is a kind of abuse. Yes. And you're clearly, as Rago said, you know, that you've, you've, you've been, you're one of the few people we've ever spoken to who've got these abilities for real and have had them since you were a small child. Um, how, do, what's your, your take, or, or what should people take away from this in terms of how to measure this thing that is unmeasurable because it didn't exist? You know, the love, the caring, the seeing. You talk about that a lot, seeing those children. And adults. I don't think... What's the best way for you to communicate to people who are listening to this right now? How to know that those emotional gaps that don't exist, I mean, they're just not there. (laughs) Um, How do people detect that that may be the root cause of their discomfort and unhappiness? The best way to do it is that um, if you've got emotional neglect going on, what you're going to feel like is that you are going crazy and you have no good reason why basically the feeling that there's there's something missing i don't know why there's an emptiness i don't know why something's wrong with me i don't know why so if somebody's been overtly abused and you have those memories it's very easy to say that's why but if you're in the i don't know why category you can guarantee it's a suffering from the lack of absence now how you could measure that i think it's pointless because measuring is really not it's like a quantitative thing and how do you really go about doing that but the biggest message, the number one reason I really wanted to put that out there is because what torments us is this idea that there's something wrong with us. I mean, if you want to look at the collective human dysfunction, it's that fact. We grow up with this atmosphere of shame. There is absolutely nothing wrong with us. We have to realize there's good reason why we're in the circumstance that we're in. Even the the mainstream psychology community is beginning to shift finally when they are understanding these concepts. And so when people come through the door, they're not looking at people, and they won't, especially in the future, with this attitude of um, what's wrong with you. The attitude is going to be what happened or didn't happen. And so it's it's our self-concept that really runs our life. We have to get that. We're in a relationship with ourselves first and foremost. So if we're walking through life thinking something's wrong with me, it's not going to be very long before you're thinking about suicide, quite frankly. So, so the reason that I want people to, to look at that aspect of their life is to know there's a reason you feel this way. You're not nuts. Mm-hmm. Something did happen, or we should say it didn't happen. Now, we can expand this further. In the spiritual sense, lack is the only thing that really torments us. So it's quite interesting to look at life in this new way because we tend to think that there's like two forces within the universe. There is this darkness and and the demonistic stuff, and that'll grasp you, right? And then on the other side, you've got the light. But what we have to understand is that science offers us a very beautiful perspective on the universe at large. The perspective is, is that darkness is only the absence of light. 
So truly, absence is the evil we've all been looking for. But the, tr the fun thing about absence, and this is where the power comes back into our hands, and by power I mean like true beautiful power, not corruption power. The true power is, how do you deal with lack? You can't fight lack. All you do is you just introduce something into that lack. So if you introduce light into the darkness, it ceases to be darkness. So this emotional deprivation is much more simple to solve than we are making it. All we have to do is add love to a place where there was none. Mm. And I feel like as a society, we definitely have the power to offer this to each other. Mm. By the way, this reminds me of something. I'm just going to interject. You know who Neem Karoli Baba is, I think. We call him Maharaji, Ramdas's guru. Yes. Right. The man in the blanket. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we all, of course, many of us followed him over, followed Ramdas over the second time he went to India. And a lot of, many of the listeners at mine really know our story and my story. And uh, what you're saying, I'll tell you one thing he said, which it directly addresses what you just said. <laughs> Somebody said to him one day, Maharaji, what do we do about darkness? <laughs> and he said, and he would say the most direct, simple things that were so profound when he said it, because he's coming from non-duality. There was yes. no two, no two. <laughs> and of course, when I say it, I'm not coming from there. Or I mean, to some degree, it is integrated, but not to that degree. But he said, when you love God, there is no darkness. Yes. And that's exactly what, that's why it just, it, it triggered me. What you just said is exactly the truth. And that's such an important uh, th thing for people to know, and which leads me to, to the next thing that I, I wanted to just, I wanted you to talk about and us to talk about. Um, and it's, it's your, um, you had a talk around mindfulness, which is mm -hmm. a big byword these days. Um, and, uh, and you talked about the observer self. Yes. Talk a little bit about it from your point of view, because this is we're talking about methodology now for people to be able because you talked about, uh, you know, we are so identified with a certain vantage point from which we see everything. <laughs> right. Yes. Talk, so we have to we need methods by which we can move our vantage point, say. So talk about your observer self method. Okay, well, first of all, it should be said that I, I feel like a lot of mindfulness practices are too out of reach for the majority of people who are completely fully identified. By identified, what that means is when you say you are not your thoughts, that means nothing to the average person because they have never experienced watching their own thoughts. So when you have fully identified with something, it means that you've imbued it with a sense of self so you can no longer step into a perspective of saying, this thought may not necessarily be true or false. This thought may not necessarily be me or not me. So um, I like to give people a mindfulness practice, which is kind of an in-between. So in the objective perspective, so we're talking about this. Like, um, I want you to imagine this. Imagine that before coming into this life, you're like a snake. And that snake comes into a snake's skin. And that snake skin we could consider to be ego. Now, let's assume that the thoughts that arise are a portion of that snake skin. Now, what if the snake could not disidentify from the snake skin? That would be a serious problem, especially when mm -hmm. death occurred. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so mindfulness practice we can visualize by 
What if we were capable of being aware that we are a snake inside of a snake skin? <gasps> now we can now we can live from two different perspectives. We can choose to go between them. So the one that I like to offer to people is to go into a state of judgment, ironically, because mm -hmm. the observer self is not usually in a state of judgment. It doesn't say this is uh, good, this is bad, this is um, blaming, this is condescension. That's a, Those are judgments the eternal self doesn't make. But sometimes if we do label something, it means we're, look, we're looking at it instead of inside of it. So the mindfulness practice that I have people do is to sit down with themselves and, of course, go into a meditative practice where you're watching the breathing. I find that a lot of times it's best to go into meditation the same way each time. So you're, it starts to trigger your brain to say, oh, this is the time to come down into that meditative space. And then we begin by observing or not really observing, listening to some people like to meditate with their eyes closed, right? Listening to the things that are happening in the environment. And that's what the attention is on. You're squarely in the present moment. So if you're hearing a dog walk, like on the floor outside, you in your mind, you just label it dog walking. Mm -hmm. You can do smells. You can do all the senses. I can smell cooking. And you, you just start going like that, labeling externally. Then your attention goes to the inside world. The inside world is what sensations am I feeling in my body. So it might be buzzing, constriction in the throat. You're just being totally mindfully present with wherever you are. Then you shift to the mind, which is the first time you start to observe your thoughts. So you will actually almost be witnessing or at least feeling to begin with your mind kind of doing this like crazy dance, almost like a, a horse that's on a lead that's real wild. So you'll see your attention dart from here to there, and you might be aware of what its focus is upon. And then if it comes up with a thought, you will literally be observing that thought. So you'll be sitting there meditating, and regardless of how enlightened people may think they are, they might notice a thought like, oh, this is just ridiculous, this isn't working. See, so instead of becoming identified with that and being like, that's right, I should definitely stand up right now, you just literally label it, judging this moment. <laughs> So you're just watching it and letting it be, which is really the essence of mindfulness practice. We're basically in the now to the degree that we're not trying to influence any other aspect of what's going on in the now. And if you start practicing this, then you start developing a gap, essentially, between the stimulus and the response. You start to notice that tiny gap, essentially, between the snake and the snake's skin. And that's when life becomes really good. Because the ego, what we have to understand about the ego, which is just nothing but the separate self is that it's not bad. In fact, it, without it, there could be no enlightenment experience whatsoever. But when we get into real trouble is when that tool starts to use us instead of the other way around. And then when we start to develop this gap between the snake and the snake skin, essentially, when we perceive the separation between the temporal um, experience of our identity, of our personality, and our eternal self, now life gets really good because we can actually utilize our our ego for what it's useful for it's fun to have a separate perspective why else would the universe come in in this way mm. you know it's fun sometimes to be a performer and identify with that the problem is when we can't take the clothes off that's why death is so painful for people it's painful because we haven't practiced taking that garment off and so in death it's stripped from us and then mm. <laughs> good luck letting go of that yeah <laughs> good luck is right you know, that's beautifully put. Yeah, really. Well, um, and you started the whole thing out saying, you know, a lot of people aren't 
at the point at which they can even think of not being identified with their thoughts. So I like to do blah, blah, and you just did it. But you just did a totally straight-ahead mindfulness uh, witness meditation. You just did it. So um, I, uh, let me. I'm going to share something with you, Teal. I did a, a podcast the other day uh, with Lama Suryadas. Do you know who that is? No. I'm horribly disconnected. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, you don't have to know. I mean, it's, 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 of, no not, it's of no import is right. Um, but he's, he's a Jewish kid from Long Island. He, he, we met him in India at uh, Neem Karoli Baba's ashram in the foothills of the Himalayas. And then from there, he, uh, he did real practice. I mean, three years alone in a cave kind of practice. Um, <laughs> Uh, and and was with some of the greatest Tibetan uh, lamas of, of the past century, um, and so he just wrote a book. So we were talking about his book, and and I just want to talk, just read this one passage because it relates to it's it's all about mindfulness, and the the empty part of it. Let's let's put it that way. For some, mindfulness has become mere mental calisthenics and concentrative exercises. When we apply mindfulness as mental floss, a routine of daily mental hygiene to maintain physical and mental health and well-being, we miss at least half of its most profound spiritual benefits. These practical, secular, rational approaches to awareness practice are just the vestibule, vestibule leading to the harmony, spiritual freedom, transformation, and ultimate enlightenment that the great wisdom traditions promise and to which their practical instructions guide us. It's good, right? Yes. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> because there's just so much banding about of that term. And uh, yes, we're going to, and David and I have talked about this on, on all sorts of different podcasts, about, yes, uh, at the brokerage company, we all do mindfulness meditation. And let me tell you that our weekly take has increased by 300%. And this is, you know, this is what's going on in, down on Wall Street. Any, uh, uh, very aptly put, Teal. Wonderful. David. Can I add something? Uh, yeah, go. Oh, please. <laughs> what, what I find fascinating, and it's also how the ego adopts, is, is the way that the ego can essentially hijack our spiritual practice. Mm. You'll always Very find that. it's sort of like the thing of where there's ego and being egoless, where it becomes a lack of mindfulness to become overly mindful. That just means we've identified with our spiritual practice too much. So you'll notice that that seems to be the, the phase of evolution that people that are very dedicated to spiritual practice end up evolving to is the point where they disidentify from their own spiritual beliefs. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's a great so true. point. Actually, you know, uh, to bring up Ramdas again, uh, we're we're really close to Ramdas, and so we talk. I mean, he's an inspiration for us. I mean, he, I wouldn't be here without him. Uh, you know, one of these days I'll tell you uh, uh, my own story of, of meeting him and what what happened and what that meant, and I could never repay that back. But I he does a funny thing around like Buddhists. There there's a certain thing because Buddhism is so crystalline, clear. It's a science. They got it down. I mean, these <laughs> people, they, they really, I mean, if I read any books, David and I talk about this all the time, they're, they're coming from Tibetan tradition because it's just incredibly pure, uh, unadulterated wisdom. And Ramdas gets after them 
all the time. And, you know, and, and we, our best friends are Buddhists. Some of my best friends are Buddhists. Uh, and it's all about uh, if you forget the heart and the love, identifi identifying who you really are, this wisdom is useless. Yes. You know, so, um, you know, that's just another thing. All right, David, sorry, I'm I well, hogging the mic. I, I wanted to bring up our friend Krishnadas. Um, I don't know if Teal knows Krishnadas. Okay, another one we're going to... Is a chanter. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, Teal, do you like music? Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. so Krishnadas, who's our brother of ours, is the leading chant guy okay. in, in the world. And you, you look him up and listen to a couple of things, or I'll send you a couple of things, okay. and you're going to like it. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, I'm having a little controversy with my cat here so oh, pardon oh. me well she just she's challenging you she's <laughs> challenging your spiritual practice yeah. well, <laughs> or yes, your podcast right and, and needs attention at a fairly regular <laughs> basis <laughs> i was uh, the reason i bring up christian dust is someone at a recent ramdas retreat uh asked him in what he thought about marijuana and marijuana usage and so on and he was very firm about saying that you know it's okay if you want to do that but i don't want to do it uh, and I don't think it helps because I think it distances you from a pure connection that is organic. Now, in your talk on marijuana, which is quite complex, I assure you, those that are listening to unique, go, by the way, go to you got to go to go, YouTube go, and find <laughs> Teal's talk on because uh, you know a lot of you people out there, yeah, are smoking it consciously is a good thing. Maharaji used well, to tell us. You talk about it, you know, uh, in the way that we all know about it. It's liberation aspects, it's release resistance, it's psychoactive. It brings you, uh, certainly in the shamanic tradition, to a, a, a better place sometimes. But what's complex and interesting, what connects with what K.D. Krishna said, is this business of, of the word um, addiction. And um, it's, it's popular these days, uh, more increasingly popular, for people to talk about it as being a gateway to good things rather than bad things. But what you say, which is interesting to me and should be interesting to our audience, I think, is that it's just not that simple. That it is a tool and it can awaken all sorts of things and it can release stress and there are some very benign aspects to it. However, I, I think you would agree with Krishnadas that if it is not accepted as being addictive, potentially, actually, existentially, there's a, a real possibility that you can lose the dynamic, which is organic connection yes. to the real profound nature of the universe. Seems like a paradox. But when I saw and imbibed your, your comments about this, I was deeply moved because I thought you attacked it in the most accurate way I think I've ever, ever encountered. And I'm not just being a psychophant here, but you have a real clear, you really do have a clear picture of this. And I want you, to, because our audience often talk, we often talk about pot and psychedelics, but specifically marijuana. I'd like you to go through a little um, journey with us as to taking it from that more commonly thought concept of Elucidation, liberation, freedom from stress, freedom from pain, helpful with certain cancers and all kinds of medicinal. That's great. And you talk about that. But then do that turn, do that little by road you go on. <laughs> the by road. Why it, why it can also be 
negative, actually. Sorry. Please. Um, we always have our, our dogs here. We've got so. dogs, cats, and everything. But there we have got a whole menagerie here. We they love play. to listen to wisdom. So give us some of your wisdom on that because people may not have seen your, your, your YouTube piece about it. If you can, give, well, us, some that. give us some of that wisdom. My number one um, issue, you could say, with pot use is the fact that you're using an external substance oftentimes far past the point at which you need it to find relief in order to be like a permanent crutch of sorts, which then disables you to getting beyond it. So you'll notice that in, in my own practice, what I will do is very, I mean, very rarely, if ever, will I tell somebody that it's even remotely a good idea to go near any kind of um, spiritual medicine, you would basically say. Because the whole point of your spiritual practice is to become a conduit yourself, to become a channel, essentially, because that's what you are. You are an embodiment and an extension of what we would call source energy, what some call God. And so my hope, and I think the hope of any spiritual instructor would be to develop the connection between a person, to help them develop it, and whatever the powers that be, their eternal self, so that they can always access those states so that they can consciously access the state of relief, so that they can consciously access the state of higher knowing and intuition. Now, if you continually use these medications as your doorway, the real threat that you have there is that you can no longer access it yourself, or it becomes more difficult because we become addicted to the extreme experience. That's what we got to understand about people, and especially about psychedelics. Is it an argument that psychedelics will blow you into dimensions of the universe and wake you up. No, you can't even argue that. Like, we know that it does that. But the problem is, is what we watch when people come back down from that experience is that there's like a disparity that they experience between the day-to-day the -day life and the, the spiritual experience that they had, which is so extreme. And so people start to chase the experience and nothing else feels as, like, as much release. And nothing else feels as amazing. Nothing mm. else feels as connected. And so do you blame people for just chasing the experience over and over again? No, but it's what happens. And it's a real worry for people in my particular position that want people to learn how to do this stuff without the, the um, tool, the external tool. That's a state of powerlessness. At a, at a certain point, using any kind of spiritual medicine for your connection to source or God is essentially something which is, I guess, a disability. Mm. And that's a state of powerlessness that I would not wish to foster in any human. So you would, you would actually extend that to the current massive trend to go down to South America and imbibe ayahuasca, which is yes. a huge thing amongst a certain class of people in this country. Would you make the same parallel statements about, about that as a catalyst or a shamanic catalyst, that it, it simply ultimately can bring about dissociation from an organic connection with the universe. Exactly, and it's not a very popular um, opinion that I hold on that because, you know, I, I'm, I'm the kind of a teacher who doesn't judge people for their decisions with themselves. At some point, you have to say, ultimately, I can't know what is per like what is perfectly right for this person. So if they feel compelled to do it, then that is up to them to do what they wish with their life. 
But if you're going to ask me for that objective perspective, my objective perspective is that those particular plants, they came to the indigenous people at a point in time where there, our density, even as a human collective consciousness, was so much lower than where it is today, that it's in essence stepping backwards to go into the spiritual realms through that particular venue. And what we also have to understand is even in those particular traditions, they were aware of this particular pothole for spiritual practice. And so the shamans themselves would tell you, we take it 100, 300, 400 times, but we do this so that we can get to the point where the shaman no longer needs the medicine. The very best ones will walk in the tent with you and they are instantly able to match wherever you are without even ingesting the substance. So what they're learning essentially to do is to tune their own personal frequency to the frequency of that dimension where people are having those experiences and journeys. Now, I would rather teach people to do that organically. Because do you see how, like, if I, if I was just to feed somebody one of these medicines and they were, say, taken to the 11th dimension, now once they come back, I can't tell them how to get there again. Because we haven't graduated there. We haven't increased our frequency in a way where we have paved the road for how to get there again. So the only option that person has now, because there's too much of a vibrational difference between their life and that experience, is to go do it again, and go do it again, and go do it again. And then this is what's real sad to me, especially with ayahuasca. When you're really in the meat of making spiritual practice part of your practical daily life, there are moments that are so beautiful where you get blown away just by the colors on the soap bubbles when you're washing your hand. That is the point of living a life that is basically full of spiritual practice. But let me tell you, if you see the colors that you will see outside of this dimension on an ayahuasca trip, you are not going to be blown away by soap bubbles. <clears throat> wow. Um, <laughs> I would like to say, though, that uh, in reference to this in my own uh, belief is that these substance not pot pot is like beer okay i mean and it's <laughs> not um but oh you're gonna make so many people mad Kicking i boy. know i do that all the time um but uh psychedelics mm -hmm. particularly mushrooms and acid and um peyote they are using these substances now in controlled environments for PTSD. We did an amazing podcast with a, a soldier who had come back with PTSD, was turned on to DMT, and then started a whole thing helping um, other veterans get through this. I think a very important work. Death, people who are dying, very important work. Addiction, very important work. So I think that these substances can be used... Uh, in, a, in a very transformative way for different um, parts of what we go through in life. And, and, I th and they're there for a reason. And I think they need, to, uh, obviously, it's how you do it. As, yep. as Ram Dass and Leary used to say, set and setting is very important. And what we were told when we went to India, you know, uh, there's the famous story of Ram Dass giving Maharaji acid, right? <laughs> Do you know this story? No, I don't, but it sounds like a good one. Uh, it's a good one. He gave him the acid. Nothing happened, right? No, nothing <laughs> happened. Um, and yeah. But then Ramdas went away, and, and Maharaji, t he, he said, give me your yogi medicine, which is what he called it. And he, you know, he tossed it, and Ramdas, when he went to, back to America, this is after the first time, he thought, 
Oh, for shit. He, he probably just threw it, and it, I didn't see it, and it went over his blanket, and he didn't really take it. So the first time, Ramdas wasn't sure if he really took it. I mean, his mind played games with himself, you know. And so he went back, and then he brought some acid back with him, and Maharaji said, you have any more of that stuff, that yogi medicine? Ramdas said, sure. And we're talking like he had the strongest acid available because that's... Oh, I know. Yeah, that's... Welcome to the 60s and 70s, right? Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) Maharaji went and took... uh, Ramdas put it in his palm... And he took it in, you know, his uh, his uh, each little pill, and he put it on his tongue, and then he you, you so he said you 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 didn't think I took it last time, right? Something he said something that was in his mind, right? So he took this enormous again hit, uh-huh. and then at one uh, three, I mean, it was enough to blow away about ten people really. <laughs> um, and then at one point, he put his blanket over his head. And he, and then he, he picked it off, and he goes, he said something. Not, am I crazy? Is something wrong? And Ramdas, oh my God, I gave him the shit. Now the guy, he's completely, you know, he completely freaked out. And then Maharaji smiled at him and, and said, "This is good. This substance is good for a beginner. It allows you to see, have darshan, be in the presence of Christ." briefly for a couple of hours and then you have to leave better to feed people is what he said but then and this is goes back to what you just said about uh, people this would help people who have such a large gap right yes i my father came to visit me in india this this story's been told a number of times on these podcasts but it's relevant for for what we're talking about and he said to me did you give your father the medicine and I went, yeah, he had a cold. I gave him some aspirin. He said, no, the yogi medicine that Ramdas gave me. I went, acid? My father, fifty odd year old businessman, advertise, you know, madman, right? <laughs> right out of madman. Mm-hmm. He was an ad, ad agency. The whole, he went acid, LSD. Anyhow, sure enough, in Benares, where people go to die, it's t- thousands of years. They're burning bodies on the banks. We were living down there in a houseboat. And he took the acid, and he realized for th- he was so disconnected, he thought he wasn't afraid to die. He was a World War II bomber pilot. Oh. PTSD to the nth degree, right? And he took the acid, and, and he and I did not get along. I mean, as a teenager, it was just a horrible. He was like a complete despot. He was awful to me. And we went back to Maharaji and met him a week later after this trip. He didn't say a word about it, and then he. But then he went and told my father some huge part of his life that nobody knew about. That was the most important thing to him, and he fell down on his just on the floor crying. And that was the end of my father, literally the end. We were lifelong friends. He just died a couple of years ago, and it was specific that he exactly what you said. My father was, and why he was given that uh, substance by Maharaji uh, telling me to do it. So uh, it is very much that, and, and I, th- I, th- I think you're absolutely right, has that, that very specific use for people. Oh, okay, are we going to get off of drugs here for a second? No, what we... <laughs> I wanted to ask Teal about something else. Uh, one of the great things about, about um, looking at Teal's vast number of YouTube videos 
is that it, you frequently are quite complex and sometimes very surprising in, in what you say until you listen further and then you get it, you know. And, um, you know, Raga and I talk to people and associate with people all the time talking about these subjects 24-7, you know. Uh, but you have a take sometimes which is, which is very, very effective. And one of the ones I looked at was this fear of conflict, overcoming the fear of conflict. <laughs> and I love the fact that you articulate something which I haven't seen quite articulated like this before, which is that, um, you know, people are in avoidance of that which disturbs them, and they just put it out of their mind. Yes. And it causes uh, ripples in the subconscious and in the, phys in the physical body, the psychic body, uh, that are deleterious, to say the least. I'd like you to expand upon that for a moment, about that fear of conflict and how to overcome it and why it is crucial to a happy life. Well, co conflict is essentially unavoidable in this life because we've come into an experience where we have so many different perspectives. And different perspectives essentially means a different life experience, a different way of doing things. And so that's not always going to align with every other being on the planet. But conflict is a massive opportunity, I think, for us to expand. Because it's not if we always agreed, there would be no tossing back and forth of opinions so as to get to a higher opinion. That's the, the real benefit of, of any kind of argument, I think, is that, if, of course, if it's open, is that you basically go back and forth with your perspectives, try each other's perspective on, and either one of you goes away the victor, essentially, and you can then step forward into the next progression of that, or else you find a third option, which is even better than what both of you thought. So it's like the expanding of thought happens by virtue of the rubbing up against each other of ideas. Now, we essentially, if we're in an attitude of escapism, then there's a whole aspect of ourselves which we are in rejection of. And so I think that when it comes to um, spiritual practice, especially in today's day and age, honestly, everything has been about feeling better and thus getting as far away as you can from discomfort. But the issue is, is that discomfort is part of who you are and it can be very true of yourself in the now. So if you seek to run away from that, you are abandoning yourself and you're abandoning other people. It can lead to a lot of problems interpersonally. There's a whole handful of ways you can hurt people, essentially, when you, when you avoid conflict, but it's nothing worse than what you will do to yourself, essentially. Because in the moment that you're avoiding that conflict, you're evading the opportunity for you to stand by your own personal sense of, of truth. And that's really critical for us if we're going to develop what we would consider to be a healthy ego. The healthy ego has got to know where its truth is. It has to live in a state of integrity. So by running away from conflict, we miss that opportunity to really be with ourselves in our truth, regardless of whether that's comfortable or uncomfortable. And so a lot you'll notice that with my teachings, I don't know if what I'm saying directly reflects what you liked about the video, but um, basically with a lot of my teachings, what I focus on is enabling people to be capable of being present with themselves, regardless of what they're feeling. So, so the way to kind of condense this is to say that spiritual practice for so many years has been about feeling better when I believe it really should be about being, getting better at feeling. Mm. Do you see the difference? Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Mm.
Now we, now we basically, when we jump out on ourselves like that and we say, I can't feel this way, I have to feel any other way, we're essentially abandoning an aspect of ourselves. And that's the same if we can't give unconditional presence to other people. If you're feeling in a negative mood and I'm saying, you know what, I'm unwilling to sit with you because that makes me feel uncomfortable, now I've just jumped out on the both of us. And this kind of a subtle abandonment happens all the time. And so the message is like, what, what if life basically ceased to be frightening because we realized we have the capacity to feel anything? And I feel like this quite literally is what's, what separates <laughs> the real true masters, you know, like your Jesus Christ, like your, um, you know, traditional lamas that are amazing, is the fact that they feel, they are so willing to feel anything that it's not that they walk into a leprous community and and they feel fabulous regardless of whether these people are like dying. What it is is that they walk into the leper community and say, I'm willing to feel. So this is not going to destroy me. Hmm. I don't need to like put on a hazmat suit, you know, to walk into this community because I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to feel these negative emotions. And by virtue of that willingness, you cease to suffer. That's the big message. Mm -hmm. What causes us our pain is our resistance to pain. It's not the pain itself. Yeah. <laughs> you just you just articulated, you know, a, kind of a precy of so many Buddhist teachers that we talk to all the time about, you know, the ordinary and the ordinary pain being where the doorway is to further expansion of consciousness and immersion in the universe and in eternal values. It's interesting because that is exactly what His Holiness the Dalai Lama has said on many occasions many occasions that the pain is not the problem the mm -hmm. problem is our resistance to accepting it and our resistance to suffering as you said jesus walking into the lepers he wasn't having a great time he wasn't smiling and dancing and saying this is just great <laughs> he was absorbing their pain and helping them with that pain and in much lesser ways we do that in in a, on a day-to-day -day basis yeah. you know when you say to someone what well, they say to you how are you doing how are you? Most people go, fine, great. And I've been a, a real bad person on this my entire life. Because if someone asks me how I'm doing, I tell them the exact truth. Me too. Time. <laughs> me also, too. I feel like shit, honestly. I'm <laughs> in a bad mood, which I usually am. And I, you know, <laughs> and I don't feel good because I've got a cold. And because my cat gets me up at 3.30 every morning, I'm completely exhausted every day. And, you know... I, I All right, think, that's oh, going stop. too far. All I said was, how are you doing, man? <laughs> yeah. That's a question. You know, polite society has destroyed a lot of this connectivity. Oh, don't even get me started on pretense. That is my least favorite aspect ever. In fact, my, my whole like spiritual movement is, in essence, the authenticity movement. It's the fact that, that our spirituality for thousands of years has been to pretend that we are in a different space than we are. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you have nothing to work with. It's the same as like plotting the chart between where you are and where you want to be, but you're unwilling to admit to where you are. So now, how do you even close that gap? You can't do it. So, so you'll notice that people get, well, people get it. Some people get it. Lots of people do get it. But other people, they listen to me you know, encouraging people to express their revenge. And they're like, no, 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 that's not spiritual. It's not good. It's not whatever. I'm like, it's where they are. We better be honest about it. Otherwise, we're not going to get out of that space, are we? Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's true because one of the reasons John Lennon is thought of as being one of the great, just great artists of all time, 
was that he wrote songs that no one had written before. He wrote, I'm so tired. I'm a loser. Uh, before that, it was Frank Sinatra singing about, you know, he was upset that someone was leaving him or one of his many girlfriends was not being faithful to him, whatever. It was all romantic love. But when the Beatles came upon us and Dylan and the birds and the dead, they, didn't, they did not in the 60s and the 70s sing about blue moon sky, love dove. They, they didn't. They sang about emotions and moods. Yeah, John yeah. Lennon wrote a song called Mother, which I don't think has ever been equaled by any artist ever, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of just how deep that song is, how deep that song is, how much misery there was there. And yet he was willing to make a song and put it on an album and have people sing it in, in, you know, while they were you know, taking a shower. And uh, I think that that ties in. Authenticity is the word you used, right? Yes, yes. You know, uh, it's really great to hear this because this is this. We is could go so, on here. We, yeah, I mean, we're, really, are, is, we are at the end though of our sponsored hour. Yeah, but well, wait, we can't go anywhere. Teal, what is the name of the book? Yeah. Okay. So my book is called Shadows Before Dawn: Finding the Light of Self-Love in Your Darkest Times. My frustration when I first got away from the experience that I was in, in a space of total self-hate, is that everybody has the same message for you, which is that you should love yourself. Oh my gosh, you just need to start to like yourself, right? Oh man. And like by the, you know, hundredth person that told me that, I was ready to kill someone, frankly. Because <laughs> like there's no methodology for that. It's just like, have fun finding the holy grail. Um, so basically, I was so fed up that I ended up looking for the Holy Grail. And I was like, I'm going to figure out how to do it if it's the last thing I do. Because I am actually kind of a ball buster sometimes. Mm -hmm. So um, I did a lot of experimenting, basically. And I found the how-to for how to love yourself. So basically, this book is a how-to book. It's not about why you should love yourself. It's about literally what do you do practically mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis so that you can go from a space of self-hate to self-love. Okay. Everybody can use this book, I would yes. suggest. Uh, and uh, it, I'm sure it's available. It's Hay House, and uh, we love Hay House. And wherever books are sold. Wherever books are sold. But no, here, you got to go Go to Amazon. See, we need support for this podcast, too, Tia. Okay. So go to Amazon and go through our link. Okay. And then when they buy the book, Teal, we get a tiny little few shekels of each purchase that helps us. I never even knew that was a possibility, so that's genius. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's called Affiliate. Yes, Amazon is uh, is our affiliate. And uh, we really thank you for uh, coming yes. aboard here and chatting with us. Uh, will you come again? Of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, we c we're literally, we I have a whole bunch of other notes, and we could have gone on and on yeah. uh, and on. So um, we're, we're going to have you back sooner than later, okay? Okay. Yes. All thank right. you, Thank, Thank you. you. Teal Thank Swan, check her out. Check out her YouTube videos. And, uh, and uh, everybody, thank you for being with us. Thank you for the support. And come to Mind Rolling and MindPod Network. And uh, there's a lot of wisdom there. And this is just more of it. See you later. <laughs>